Welcome to We the Women. This is our celebration of the 19th Amendment. Exactly 100 years ago, on August 18, 1920, the 19th Amendment was ratified, giving women the right to vote. To celebrate, we'll be talking to women from around South Carolina, thought leaders, movers and shakers. We'll ask them about how they have used their voice and what they have done to contribute to our great democracy. Enjoy the conversation. In this episode, Post and Courier education reporter Jenna Schifferl interviews Dot Scott, president of the NAACP Charleston branch. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time to come and chat with us this afternoon. That's first of all, um, I'm really excited to have you here and I've been looking forward to, to speaking with you. So thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me. Awesome. So you have been a long time president of Charleston Branch NAACP. Um, I was curious to, to hear about your experiences in the time that you've been there. Um, I, I wanted to first ask, so what are you most proud of though in your tenure um, at that position? Other than the work that we do, uh, I think that the diversity of our NAACP branch is one of the most, I mean, thing I'm proud of because I think it helped us so much to get things done quietly rather than to have to make a public protest or do a press conference. Just having different advocates from different areas and, and different races and pos position of authority has been immensely important and, and help us in our level of success, uh, which I have to say that um, oftentimes unseen it's like it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And that has its good and bad because if folks don't see, particularly from the standpoint of those who are probably experiencing issues of concerns, if they don't see that you're doing something, they don't think mm -hmm. that you are. And I often have to remind them, it's like your attorney is not going to go and have a press conference to tell the public what they just got done for you. So um, uh, I'm proud of our diversity and absolutely proud of the relationship I've been able to, to have with what I call the powers to be, people in position of authority, uh, folks in, at uh, different businesses. Uh, those, those things have been very helpful. How long have you been president for? I, I have been president of the Charleston branch of the NAACP since 2001. That makes me about 19, 20 years. Uh, prior to that, I have been a life member of the NAACP since 1980. Um, um, I had spent some time after graduating high school, went to New York, came back, and got involved with the NAACP then and um, served on the board. And I went on a sabbatical for my work for a while and came back. So. Around about 2001, that's when I uh, accepted the position just before I retired. Um, but um, civil rights has been something that I've been involved in, believe it or not, it's since I've been 18. That was what I wanted to actually ask you about is what inspired you or what prompted you to pursue this life civil rights um, and activism? And this is one of these things I have been recounting here in recent months. At age 17, almost 18, I was then president of my senior class. Um, and we had a couple of students, I think it was three of us, 
um, that was selected to go to South Carolina State College for College Day. And um, that's in April. In February, that's when we had the Orangeburg Massacre, where the three young males who were fighting for entrance into the bowling lane, that they were killed. And so when I got there that day, and I often say I don't remember anything else other than the three crosses that were up on that hill. And I could not at that age understand that they were dead because they wanted to go in the bowling lane. And I think from that on, there was that fight that, you know, if it's wrong, you've got to say something. Um, I just just had a conversation just now and someone said, we need to say something about what needs to happen at our business because it's the virus, but we're afraid to say it. And the first thing I said to her, you can't be afraid. If you're doing the right thing, you can't be afraid. You have to speak up. And that, from then on, that's, that's been what I do. Wow. So it sounds like that moment when you were young, 18 year old, you know, Absolutely. young. Absolutely. Student and Absolutely. seeing that really and that you on this path. And that period followed with, you know, we had the king of uh, the death of uh, Dr. King. There was so much happening during the 68 time period and around that time. So I graduated in, 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 in 68 and got married in 69 and left and lived in New York for a couple of years and um, came back to Charleston um, in early 71, 71. Do you think, I mean, these kind of experiences that you shared from whenever you were a teenager, especially relevant when we're having conversations right now, <laughs> considering the national climate, do you think it's lost on some people that they might not realize the things that you experienced during the civil rights movement it is, you know, within your lifetime or... Um, it's almost like I would answer that, that I don't think it really had been found. A lot of folks, if you don't know what the past was, they think this is what it is. Uh, so it's hard for them to measure and see where we've come from. Uh, if history is not being taught in school, particularly among the African-American children, they don't know the past. They don't know about the uh, the kids in Birmingham uh, and the church. They don't know that. So they take things for granted that it's always, you know, this is the way it is. This is all we know. And um, having been uh, young enough at that time to see the kind of stuff, I tell folks, if you think about me at age, say, six or seven, and we had a one-room school, and the bus would pass us by walking to the school. It was an old church. And we literally would walk about a mile and a half to school. And when we got there, there was a, no heat in the, the building. So you go outside and you pick up the pine cones and you put it in the fire and you start a fire to warm you up. so you can. And we had this one-room school. So when you start out there and you realize that by the time we had a high school, because you were doing their um, equalization of the schools, when everybody was fighting for integration at school and the powers to be are the the other race said, no, we don't want integration. We don't want our children to be integrated. So the compromise was, okay, we'll build some schools. They're known as equalization schools. So about farther where we used to live, the school was actually built in front of my mom's house, still right where it is now. So then we got a school built, but 
woefully inadequate when you compared it to the schools that others had, but was far better than what we we left, where we left. I actually ended up graduating from high school, from that school that's still there. It's no longer a high school now, but it's still there. Is this in Eugene? In Eugene. In Can Hoy School. Can used to be Can Hoy High School. That's my alma mater. The Intertech Group and the Zucker family are proud to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. What do you remember about that time being a young student? Do you remember the fight that some people were so angry about fighting against integration and and integrating schools? Do you remember that? I remember it happening. I wasn't a part of it. We lived out in the country, so we didn't spend a lot of time interacting with people who probably were really active in those things. Um, My mom mom was uneducated. She's, she's, like I said, but... She's the reason I fight so hard. She's so smart. Maybe she didn't need the education. But um, uh, no, I don't remember any involvement in civil rights work until I would say I actually came back here to Charleston, and um, that would make me about maybe 21 years old. And um, then I was in it. I mean... Totally in it. It was like I lived and breathed. Things has to be better, um, and I hadn't gone to college at the time, um, but uh, I went to college after I started working. And then I got the master's degree, and you know, it, it's those things that you know. This is what I want to do, but I still got. At the time, I only have the one daughter, and um, at the time from my marriage, we had the one child, and then it was go to work go to school. So I got both of my degrees while I worked full time. Uh So you graduated high school and then, correct me if I'm wrong, but you went to New York to work for a little bit. I went to New York. Well, I went went to New York because I got married to someone who was living in New York. He was raised from, so we went to New York to live. And I had, uh, strangely enough, during the uprising here, um, and I was looking at Macy's and the doors to Macy's, how they had uh, vandalized the store. I used to work at Macy's as a credit investigator. So I'm saying in nostalgia, I lived in the Bronx, worked at Macy's there for a couple of years, and that marriage didn't go well. So I decided I'll come back home to Mama, came back here. And then I actually came back and lived in Charleston at the time when I came back in 71. So I lived in Charleston. And that's when you really started kicking off your uh, activism. Yes, yes. And when I came back, my, my activism pretty much was all at my former employee. I worked for Bell Self for 31 years, and I was the first African-American female that could be a clerk. Uh, when I walked in, and I, I had worked at New York Telephone as well, because during the time of marriage, giving birth, and then going back to work in New York, I worked at um, New York Telephone and at Macy's. So when I came back here and tried to get employment at the phone company, they weren't having, if you didn't want to be an operator, you could not work at Bell, Southern Bell at the time. And um, I refused to take the job as the operator, at the operator, and I started work for a real estate company. And I actually got offered a job with the FBI in Washington, but I had a little baby, couldn't leave wouldn't leave, and so I started working at uh, a a real estate company and then got to um, finally Bell South. I I guess Southern Bell caught up with my record from working at um, the phone company, and finally they called me and said, now I can come and work. So 
there's there, this little things you go through, like discrimination in housing. This is not a new thing. And I thought, folks, I, I speak from experience because you have these instances where you go through and you realize that you're not making it up because some folks say, oh, they just crying to discrimination. I actually applied for apartment and what it's called, I guess it's Mary Ellen Drive and all the nice places. I mean, those are the way the million dollar houses are on Wagner Terrace down there. But they used to be apartment complexes and I wanted to get an apartment there. And my sister, who's now, we were really close in age, 11 month old, she's passed, but she had a tailor shop on King Street for 31 years. She wanted an apartment and she worked for this very wealthy businessman called Carish downtown. and. He decided he'll help her get an apartment. I had already applied for an apartment. They had already told me no. And my sister, by because she had connection, they got an apartment for, for, for her. And I go back and I ask him, do you still have my application? She said, yes, we do. And I, for whatever reason, I said, can I see it? And they had Negro written on the top corner of the apartment. I said, now, Someone got an apartment, never told her it was my sister. Someone got an apartment on Mary Ellen Drive just a couple of weeks ago. And I know that person applied after me. And they gave me the apartment, funny. But those are the things that happen. Those things, you know, we, we go through that. So it has always been real for me that I know that these things are happening. It's not that you're not qualified. You know, uh, you're not qualified for everything you might want, but you pretty much know these are things. They're just denying you for what other reason other than the fact that you're an African American. So that those things reinforce my desire to see if I can make a difference. The things that my mom had had to experience, even with her, she was a domestic worker and was able to see some things there too. So um, it was just one of those things that. I felt I had to do. I think something that I also wanted to, to talk to you about is that you've been a long time education. Advocate. Mm-hmm. That's something mm-hmm. that I know is mm-hmm. um, very dear, near and dear to your heart. Um, because I've spoken with you um, a couple of times. I'm an education reporter about mm-hmm. the things going on um, today mm-hmm. in Charleston County. Mm-hmm. Um, do you still think there's a, a problem with schools in Charleston County? Absolutely, absolutely. And having these achievement gaps with students. Absolutely. I have been, and I'm a strong supporter of the superintendent that's here. And we have had other superintendents that I think have done as well as they have been allowed to do. Um, I have to always look to see beyond whether or not these folks are just not good, good superintendent, are they dealing with some of the embedded racism and um, they don't have the final say. Sometimes they're doing the best they can with um, what do they've got to work with. So um, uh, we still have some real problem. I think impediments are put in place that directly affect the equalization of access to education. And uh, when we have uh, magnet schools and we have resources that are able to be given to them. Right now, when we can see that Bessie DeVault and whomever else decides how much money you get, or the, the president now says, if you don't send the kids to school, we're going to take the money away. To me, those are the kind of stuff that says the majority of the 
African-American children are not in private schools. And I'm not saying the, the majority of all the white kids are in private school or other races. That's not what I'm saying, but the majority of them are African-Americans. And if you don't get uh, the basics, if you don't get, and it's not, not all the school, but I tell folks when you look at the totality of who's educated, who works where, how much time parents have for their children versus some of the others. Now, all parents waste time. All parents are not the most responsible. I, I see it all the time. I've been in real estate rental for a long time. So I've seen some things that just make you want to just wonder, maybe they never got it, so they can't give something they don't have. But uh, these children at this day and time, a lot of the African-American children are um, so woefully not prepared to begin with, and then not having um, uh, the adequate resources to bring them to where they need to be. Uh, I speak often about Ben Navarro's school, a really good relationship with Ben, because when Ben first came and um, came to meet with me, I'm saying, oh, no, here's another school's going to start. They'll use the black kids, and then when the school gets good, the most powerful people will the kids they'll they be they'll be moved. That didn't happen. I didn't visit Ben's school for about a year. I think it's it was more than a year before I would go even visit it. I was just not down with it, and then I went there and saw what he was doing. And I mean, I became his biggest fan. I mean, I mean, you you knew, and um, so I said. Every public school can't be a band of our meeting street school. But the truth is, the kids, where most of those kids are, if they don't get that kind of intense, they'll never catch up. You know, they'll never really catch up. And uh, that's sad, but it's just true. So the, the fight for, I mean, to get rid of integration. I mean, there's been a quiet fight for we just don't want the things you used to hear years ago, you'll be getting to hear it again. We don't, we want our own school. We want every reason why the you can't educate the kids in the same school. So uh, resources get spent that way. When we build school in Mount Pleasant, we see what kind of school gets built, and we see all the resources get put there. And then you build something in North Charleston, you wonder if they're building it for the little prisoners or something. I'm serious. That that's what I, that's what I thought about. When you talk about public school, public school, you're not talking about a private school. You're talking about public funds that, that we're still doing the same thing. Desba Payment Solutions provides point-of-sale systems to local and nationwide businesses. Desba's mission is to educate and provide choices in point-of-sale systems to match your business needs. We listen and help to find exactly what you're looking for and at the best pricing possible. Desba's Payment Solutions is proud to be a woman-owned business and passionate about making a difference in the community. Desba was founded by Linda Hancock in 2003 and has built a reputation around the Charleston area as a competent, hardworking, and beneficial business partner. Working with Desba benefits everyone, not just your business. Desba is a company with community at its heart. I spoke with you um, this is a while back, maybe in December or early January, when the Charleston County School Board um, was really trying to make some big changes. Um, and they, I think we talked about, there was a lot of pushback. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of pushback um, from parents. And we don't know if it was just because of a fear of change, but 
the board kept saying, we need to do something. Um, we don't know if this is going to work. We need to do something because right now we are not serving all of our children fairly. Um, and you, I, if I don't, if I remember correctly, you were kind of an advocate for, yes, we need to, we need mm-hmm. to make this change. We need to make mm-hmm. that leap. Um, tell me about what was kind of going through your mind whenever you were following the backlash, I think. Um, <laughs> I got some ugly pictures from that. My, uh, the photographer decided I must have been livid that day because I've had an opportunity to laugh at some of those pictures because I was like really perturbed. Um, the 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 vitriol about it, it was almost like, we're not trying to hide this. We really don't want our kids to uh, um, to be integrated in school. We really don't care. We, just, we really do not care. We fought for the River School and the River School game. And then we had Arthur Ravenel came out and say, I guess over my dead body, would you have this school? Because this is my uncle or whatever built the school. We want to keep it for the kids. And before we knew it, they had the black kids coming through the back door and the uh, the kids coming through, you know, the other kids come through the other door. Uh, that's the kind of fight that's been going on and on and on and on. But um, I've, in my involvement with the school district, I have seen us, almost every one of the superintendents that have come in have tried their best to try to effect some change that would show some kind of uh, equity in, in access to education. And every one of them, whether it was uh, when we had the uh, black superintendent, she got treated really, really, really bad. And then we had McGinley, and then, you know, then you, then Maria Goodlow, and then, you know, it's this constantly that we don't want to change. We really don't. And yet they complain about the fact that these kids are, you know, these kids don't really want an education. And granted, you have kids like that. You have parents that really don't really have the level of care and concern that they should have for them. But as advocates for them, I don't have the luxury of saying, you know, I'm advocating for the children whose parents want them to have a kid because those kids are going to be in the same neighborhood and our neighborhood and they're going to live in and and, and the, the results of their behavior becomes part of the culture that we, we're dealing with. And um, so um, I have just been such a, a strong advocate for um, for education. My, my mom, third grade education, and she would always say, I don't care what else we did. And she never could say education just right. She said, y'all need to get an education. It was an education that we had to get. And everyone heard, she's got a, a son. I mean, she's got folks... I guess all of her daughters got degrees and son that's got college degrees. She insisted we had to, you can do anything else, but you have to get an education. And she knew well enough because we had to teach my mom how to write her name. Her mother died at 14, so she was pretty much on her own. Her dad, uh, uh, they had, mother and dad had divorced. Her mom was an amputee and it was like, that's one fighter. She was one fighter and so, uh, while she was not educated, everything that I've done, it's been because mom said, this is what you got to do. Do you think, um, we talked about what kids learn in school and, and that sort of thing. Do you think that's something that is kind of being put into the the spotlight recently when we have these conversations about Confederate monuments and things like that? Um, 
does it also have this part of the problem that we need to, to reevaluate what kids in South Carolina learn in their history? Mm-hmm. And the thing about it is, it's been obvious that if the Confederate uh, monument and stuff is something to be proud of, and I say that because it's not my heritage, so so I'm saying if it can be, but we don't want to talk about it. If it's good and, and, and healthy and homogenous, whatever, then why not teach the kids what it is? Our black kids, we came through high school with... I never saw a new book in our life because all the books that we got had names in them. We, we used to laugh about here's Heather's book and here's the name. Black children would never, we never got new book ever, ever. So all the books, whether the backs were falling off or whatever, this is a public school. So these are the kind of stuff we grew up with, we grew up with. But uh, I, I, I'm just uh, thinking that we have not been fair to our people and both race and terms of not telling the truth. The truth is the truth is what it what it is. And the reason behind some of what's done and you want us, that's why when the mayor were talking about, well, we can take the statue and we can put the name on it. Who's gonna stand up and read all about and first thing, I was invited to a conference, not a conference, but a a, uh, a lecture to talk about somebody someone wanted me to be there because at the college because she was she was gonna talk about the fact that she was so upset that her um, forefathers, a great-grandfather, had owned slave. And she could not understand why I didn't want to come. I'm saying, what do I get out that if I already know that? And oftentimes you find yourself, you're in a room, and you want a few black people in there. Are you? Re- it's like reminding me you are just about, let me understand, let me just remind you that somehow the fact that my parents own your forefathers, that's something I need you to tell me about. If we're going to have a private conversation, well, that's one thing. And I think sometimes people are insensitive about that because that never goes away. It, it never goes away, particularly when I find myself far too often in meetings and places where I'm the only black person there. There's a problem with that. I tell black folks, when, they, when you write a resume and I say, you tell me I'm the first black person to do that, I am not impressed because somebody else tried to open that door so many times before you came and it, it finally let you through. Sounds like the pain is still very raw. It is. It is. It is. When we see, and the, the thing about it is, because I spoke early on about how things are, we are able to get things resolved, and I try not to make a public thing out of everything, but we deal with it all the time. I just called the sheriff back this morning to thank him for a meeting, and every complaint we get is not a legitimate complaint. This person, he, he, he's in an officer at the sheriff's department, got fired, and he, he's calling me, but there were some things that has nothing to do with his race. I said, you guys can't call me and think that something happened because you're black. It happened because you did this. It has nothing to do with whether you're black or not, because if a white person had done it, I'd be looking at it the same way. But we get so much stuff, like some of the killings that you go and you got people like, and I, I speak to all of them, whether it's our solicitor or whatever. It's like we turn a blind eyes to things that you know. Things happen in the community. We deal with it differently. Uh, the, the, uh, the resource put into finding out who did it, uh, it gets done. But I, I'll just, just the system. But 
here again, when I talk about the fact that the diversity in the NAACP is so great, there are so many people that's here that's doing the right thing, that's trying to make it better. The CJCC down at the sheriff's office, these folks, are, they, they're doing awesome work in terms of trying to make sure things are fair. The, the ACLU, they are doing awesome things. The folks there at the YWCA, these people are training officers and doing racial bias training. All of those things make a difference. So we have, while we can see what's not right, uh, we, what's, what's wrong, we can see the things that the people of goodwill that are still doing. So um, I, I, I've had to remain hopeful. I don't, I don't know how I would not with as many complaints that I get that I didn't see that there, there's got to be a light at the end of the tunnel. Now, if someone had told me that these statues would be coming down now, no, I would never have I've never ever believed it. I heard the Citadel right now. I've got a complaint, a, 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 a formal complaint, and I've taken it uh, to the Board of Visitors. I want to talk to the President of the Board of Visitors, and um, now they're talking about some of the the, the, the flags that's in the in the there too. Um, it's like it did it have to did it have to take this? And this is my this is my Christianity in me, and I say where well, the Lord will take ordinary people and do extraordinary things. That's what I believe with George. Ordinary person, something happened to him. It wasn't some star or anything, somebody that, that like people say, somebody that people would consider about a nobody, that this happens, and then the world pays attention. And, and the other part of it is, it hasn't been easy as a black woman. It, it really hasn't. And, I, and I'm not just talking about from the sense of maybe from dealing with other white folks. Just to be the black woman that's the, what some people call the mouthpiece, um, you have to fight for, it's almost like, they won't call, mention my name without mentioning my vice president. It's like, no, black women are not seeing that. What's well, folks? When you look at, you line up all your folks. I told um, the guy, wife, um, who was it the other day? I'm saying, the most powerful person in people in Charleston is white women. They are white women because as long as they're talking to white men, they're the most powerful people there. But at the end of everything else, it's like if I'm there, it's almost like where the guy who's going to help you. Tom, Tom, are you kidding? But that's the kind of stuff you have to deal with. But I think that's the least of my problem because I've not had a problem telling them. It, don't, it doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't stop you. No, 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 no. That's what I wanted to ask you. Is you, you were in a, a powerful position, and you have been for the last 19 mm-hmm. years with mm-hmm. the NAACP. I wanted to know how how do you navigate that space, not only being a person of color, but also a woman of color? It's kind of rough. But um, one of the things I did, I think I uh, intentionally set myself up to be able to do something with some autonomy later on. And I think that if you're employed with a company and you wanted to be the president of the NAACP, the first problem I had is when I, there was a lady that lived in Goose Creek. And when I, I was a member of the NAACP for some time. And then when I became president, she didn't want to work for anybody um, that was the NAACP president because somehow I think she saw that as me probably being biased 
towards white folks, I learned early on that it, if it wasn't for decent white folks, if it wasn't for some of those Jews, NAACP wouldn't even exist. So a couple of years ago, I don't know if you remember or not, we had um, um, Remembering Our Founders. We paid tribute to the five of the six actual uh, founders of the NAACP. I'm mindful of that, and I try, and a lot of times we have black folks don't know that. But for the help of folks who have position, but for the help of some of those folks that were able to get in the room when we couldn't get in and come out and, and, and share with, this is what they plan to do, this is what's happening, we would not have been able to move the, what we said now, we said move the needle as it has been moved. Uh, so um, I am so conscious of not being biased. If nothing else, my mom was a prime example, and I, she came at a, up at a time where she saw a lot of racism. And then she was keeping this, what did she, she was never, um, I'm trying to find out, oh, my sister uh, was foster mother. She, she never had any children, so she would have foster kids. And there was this little boy that she had. And I watched my mom, how she doted over that baby like she had to make sure she had to protect this child and and that child she loved my mom so much and when finally he left my mom was devastated when someone finally adopted because my daughter my my daughter uh, my sister uh, she finally ended up adopting but during that time she wasn't adopting any, um, any children then I think she thought still had hope she was going to have children then she finally gave up but my mom was one of the most unbiased biased person and I think hers was more out of not feeling comfortable about it's almost like um she was not comfortable around white folks but um she didn't have that kind of bias she does and my mom was one of the one that would tell you stop talking about people <laughs> so she wouldn't even let us talk about stop talking about people so um uh, that was there and and I, I I just grew up not not disliking and hating folks because of what they are. Because once you know how that feels, knowing that folks are judging you just because they that's you, your sight, before they even know you, they will begin uh, to make judgment of you. That's that's hard. And being a, a woman, that's even harder. And being uh, not only fight, say, the general public. I, got, I get that kind of problem from African male. I got a good friend in trouble right now with the Post in Korea, and I used to always tell him, your 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 reputation is all you got. And so when I would ask to have meetings with some of them, they would leave me out because I'm 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 pretty straight laced at doing the right thing. That's what I'm saying. So they would leave me out, and I would tell them, be careful about what you do because if, if it happens in the dark, it's going to come out sooner or later. So we see that, and and a lot of times they will not include me in a part of what's going on, and our children suffer because of that. I said, when you leave out the black women, you definitely are leaving out the black children because we have too many of those uh, uh, children where there's no father in the house, especially the younger one that our school-aged kids, and that's the sad commendation on, on um, the absence of the young black fathers. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's major. And I think that is an important thing to keep in mind whenever we talk about 
what we're doing right now, this project about the 19th Amendment. Um, yes, it gave women the right to vote, but there were still oh. for black women and it, to, to secure that right. Uh, absolutely. It's like, here again, we're at the bottom, we're at the bottom. Well, something that was happening the other day, and I, I told somebody, at least we don't have to count, count the rock, and we don't have to count how many peas we're putting in the jar and stuff like that, but the impediments are still there. And when we, we see some of the other stuff about the suppression of the votes, even after you get the vote, and um, my daughter will tell you, and I've got only the one daughter, um, that there are some things that she never forgets. She's at 18, two things my mom said, one I had to do, and then one she let me do. I had had her ears pierced early on as a young kid. She won a second pierce, and I told her, when you get 18, you can get another pierce. And then when you get 18, before you get the pierce, we're going to go register you to vote. And my grandson, I've got a grandson who's 23. And we, they, they, that's a must. That's just one of those things that's a must. You have to, you have to, do you know the blood, sweat, and tears that was paid for this? You have to. And so I guess we just have to do one at a time, keep fighting and keep speaking and tell them, uh, trying to get folks to understand that um these or these gains have been a lot have been paid for it. I mean, when we think about what's happening with the flags and 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 and, and also with the wrong, because I fought um, a long time with the flag, Confederate flag, and in, in Colombia, and oh, it's not going to come down. It's not going to happen. And you never say never. And uh, uh, when uh, the mayor called. Um, and while we, I know that we have people that think that they, they're the one that caused it to come down, I said, it's the leadership there at, at the at City Hall. But for the, the leadership there and the, the council people there, that, um, that's where it all happened. Because mm-hmm. we, can, we can fuss, we can march, we can do whatever. And until the pressure or the desire or something happened like the, the, what's going on now happens, it, it didn't happen, it didn't work. Is there anything else that we haven't covered um, related to any of these topics, education, your life, Mm-mm. being a, a woman of color in a leadership role um, that we haven't talked about that I should have asked, but I didn't, or that you want to talk about? Mm-hmm. Not not in particular. My daughter tells me all the time, Mommy, you write your resume. You don't like to put all that stuff in it. I said, just let the work speak for me. And um, so um, I think I've said enough about me and um I appreciate the question, uh, and I, I, I surely appreciate the opportunity to speak with you um, and to, to be able to share. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. I really mm-hmm. appreciate it. Mm-hmm. I'm grateful that our company prides good journalism and that they allow us to do what we need to do in, instead of cutting back like many papers are in our industry. Knowledge is power, and I hope to empower our readers to contact their legislators, uh, be involved in their state government. I believe our readers need to know whatever the issue is of interest to individual readers. We the Women is a special series of the Post and Courier in celebration of the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. To enjoy all 19 interviews, visit postincourier.com backslash we the women.